Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to Pediatric Meltdown, and today we are going to continue our ADHD series with one of the most popular guests on my show, Dr. Colleen Cullinan. And Dr. Cullinan is a pediatric psychologist specializing in integrated primary care and preventative services. Dr. Cullinan completed her PhD in clinical psychology at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, Michigan in 2015. Her presentations and publication record center around integrated care, family-based interventions, and experiential cultural humility training. Dr. Cullinan is also the co-founder of the Dream IPC Conference, a biennial conference centering innovations in pediatric integrated care. The next conference will be in September of 2023. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Colleen Cullinan. Hey, Colleen, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm good. I am so happy to see you and have you back. You're one of my most popular guests, I'll have you know. So it is always a delight. And we're going to just pick right up because I know we have a lot of content. Um, This is for listeners. Part three of our series on ADHD executive functioning, and it has been fascinating. So we are going to pick up where we left off, and I'll make sure to put in the show notes the links to our previous two episodes so you can get all the goodies. Um, But we'll just start with where we left off, which was working memory. So let's talk about that. Go. Yeah. (laughs) Well, love talking about working memory. And this has just been so fun. So I'm really excited for part three. Um, I don't think we even knew it could go to part three, but here we are. So so with working memory, I guess with all of the executive functions, just as like a like reminder for folks, um, when we're talking about executive functioning, you know, it's this kind of group of higher order functions. Um kind of the air traffic control system of the brain. And and one really important executive function is working memory. You know, other ones that we've talked about, internal speech and sense of time and all of these kind of play together. And I think working memory is a really important executive function to talk about. The one thing I would say is, just as a reminder, all kids are bad at executive functioning. Nobody's good at it until they're in like those mid-20 years. So no kids are great at executive functioning. And kids who meet criteria for ADHD tend to be about two to three years delayed compared to their same age peers. And I think this is particularly true with working memory. And working memory is really a tricky executive function because as adults, we are actually pretty decent at it. We're pretty decent at doing some of the tricks that need to happen for a working memory to to be successful. So a working memory is really this ability to hold multiple pieces of information in your mind and manipulate them to have things that you're working on mentally, five to seven things. And it's not just being able to do that. It's also about being able to like use that information and like move your body and move through the world and like do the things you need to do. And so it's kind of this ability to hold a phone number in your head and walk to the kitchen to get your phone. It's this ability to make like a very short grocery list in your head and then get in your car and drive to the store. It's this ability to take tasks, 
whole multi-step instructions in your mind. And as adults, we become almost naturals at consolidating this information efficiently. So if I'm making that short grocery list and I'm jumping in my car to go to the store, I can do something like, okay, what I really need is breakfast foods. And then I can remember five to seven breakfast foods. I can remember that I need coffee and cereal and eggs and fruit and milk. And I can keep that in my brain and operate a motor vehicle because I've done this kind of neat thing where I said, these are breakfast foods. I've made a category. I used a mnemonic. I did something to make this multi-step thing into one step. And as adults, we're actually not every adult, but as adults, generally speaking, we're actually pretty good at this. Kids are actually not really good at this. This leads to, I think, a lot of miscommunications and misexpectations. The things that we think of as adults or parents or caregivers as one thing, as one task, is actually a bunch of tasks. And so I know we talked a little bit about this in our last episode, but I think that working memory is a particularly tricky executive function because as adults, we've actually kind of trained our brains to do a lot of little tricks almost effortlessly. And kids' brain, that is not like a natural skill. That's like, or that's not like a natural ability. That's a learned skill that takes years and years and years of practice and tricks. We all have our little tricks for navigating the world. And I think as adults, we kind of expect like kids have their tricks too. And and no, it takes years and years of practice to do that. I'm thinking while you're saying that I'm, my working memory (laughs) is very busy. Two things that come to mind. One is long division. You know, when you're doing long division, at least the way I learned it, you know, you divide a number into the first and you put the number up at the top and then you multiply and you put it underneath and then you subtract and then you do it all over again. So it's like multiple steps. So that feels like kind of a working memory math problem. But then the other thing that I think is more familiar is the um, very common issue with all kids, regardless of whether or not they have ADHD, is go clean your room which we think is a simple instruction. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think long division, clean your room, those are great examples of like, as adults, we've kind of put category labels on these things that are actually multi-step processes. And if you don't know the multiple steps, it's not defiance or non-compliance. It's like, I think I get it. I think I get what you want me to do, but it's overwhelming and I'm not 100% sure. Because you're right, clean your room, is stop what you're doing, pick up your body, put it in the room, like look around the room, survey the scene, make, you know, make a plan to some degree of what you're going to pick up and how you're going to do it and shoes in the shoe bin and toys in the toys bin and make your bed and, you know, make sure the laundry goes in the laundry, you know, all of that stuff. It's actually multiple steps. And parents will say like, okay, but we do the same steps all the time. So why isn't this clicking? Like, why aren't we getting anywhere with this? And I think it is like as adults, we kind of take for granted, like I've cleaned my room a billion. I can't even, you know, who could even count the amount of times I've tidied various spaces in my home. I know what that is almost like second nature. It's like riding a bike, you know, but it's the same idea. Like when people are like, just ride a bike. And it's like, well, that's actually a multi-step really hard thing to do that requires sort of this integration of your body and your brain working together and doing things. And that's actually a lot of stuff in our world. And I think because it comes pretty fluidly to adults who've been navigating the world for a really long time, it's really frustrating when it doesn't come fluidly to kids. I was thinking as you're talking about riding a bike, "Mm, what about driving a car, which seems to me a very complex task with a very dangerous piece of machinery in a kid who doesn't have a well-developed brain yet. What do you think about 
how kids do with driving. I can tell you how my 16-year-old, the, the, the first day that I, I made many bad decisions about thinking she was prepared, I think I was just so relieved I wasn't going to have to drive her everywhere. So the first day that she decided to drive, it was to school. She backed out of our driveway. And my husband gets a phone call. Dad, I've hit the phone pole. <laughs> so he he goes running down the street. Literally, it's a phone pole that is at the end of our driveway. So she was in our driveway. <laughs> and that was the beginning of several small dings. And then eventually one very bad accident, which both my kids walked away from totally fine. But my car was totaled. And, you know, these were all within the span of, you know, a year, year and a half. Um, I, you know, I'm not sure that she was putting it all together. Yeah. And I put her in those positions, which I, you know, were I to do it over again? Yeah, no, I think note to self. No, driving is an awesome example of like this integration of working memory and sort of, you know, a bunch of executive functions, honestly. And I think this is something that a lot of states are grappling with. Like, should we be raising the driving age? Should we be making more rules about how many hours you have to have logged or you can't drive, you know, at nighttime? Or, you know, there's a lot of states that have different laws about this. I think attacking exactly what you're talking about. There's some really interesting data, and I wish I had a better site. I'll have to look something up and send it to you. But there's actually a lot of really interesting data about executive functioning differences and like changing lanes and doing that well and checking your blind spot because that is a real executive function right is like i have to operate the car and keep it in its place and i have to check my blind spot i have to monitor where all the cars are around me i have to like account for i'm going a certain speed and it looks like someone else is going a certain speed also the radio's playing also my friends you know talking to me even some of that like that um there is a lot of data that suggests that folks who meet criteria for adhd are in more car accidents and have more moving violations and tickets and that kind of stuff. I think driving is really a test of executive functioning. And and you bring up something I think super important, which is oftentimes at 16, 17 years old, I have really well-developed verbal skills. So I can pass the driver's ed class and I can talk to you about all the rules of the road, right? I can tr I can tell you all the rules and how you're supposed to do stuff and when you're supposed to signal and when you're supposed to brake. And I can talk to you about how I'm supposed to check my rearview mirror before I back out of the driveway where there's a pump hole or whatever. Like I can say all the right words, but that's not the same as putting it all together with executive functions. I think that this is where it's like, you know, sometimes people are like, well, are you talking about intelligence? Are you talking about uh, social skills? And it's like, no, executive functioning really is, it's kind of like its own bird. It's its own thing, like its own set of metacognitive skills. And like driving is a perfect example of like, I can speak with you verbally about what that process is, but to actually get in a car and do all the things and pay attention to all the pieces is a whole different thing that you're right. I too question if like, even the average 16 year old is really capable of meeting the executive function demands that driving a car entails. Yeah. Well, and I'm also thinking about other scary things like firearms, about executive function and just insight and judgment. That worries me. But that's a whole nother topic that I'm going to let go. But I once likened working memory to having a desktop, you know, where I can put my computer and I've got my phone and I've got some papers and pencils and I've got this big desk with a lot of stuff and I can move it around. But if my working memory top is really tiny, stuff's falling off all the time. Right. You know, it's just like there's only so much space that I can hold for all the things that I'm supposed to be doing. Right. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think sometimes we overload that space. Sometimes we think that we're filling it up in the right ways, but actually we're we're really like, yeah, slamming too many post-its down and we're stacking them on top of each other. We're hoping it's working out, but it's the the brain can't do that. And you know, as adults, we really do a great job of like figuring out hacks to make it work, to make the desktop organized. But kids don't know those hacks. That that comes with experience and that comes with teaching and coaching and kind of scaffolding the how do you make a desktop that works for you? Or how do you make a desktop that that yeah, isn't gonna be with stuff spilling out the sides? I think that's about right. And if your desktop is tiny because you've got working memory issues, now you really gotta figure yeah. it out. So so there were a couple of other things that we talked about, and I'm not sure exactly where they fit with this, but, and that was hindsight, foresight, and insight. Yeah. And I think it's a little bit related to this idea of working memory and it kind of like ties sort of working memory slash sense of time. And so like this, and you know, I'm sure there's a more sophisticated way of describing this than hindsight, foresight, insight, but this sort of really adult thing, which is the ability to look backwards and and analyze a situation. You know what I mean? Like I am capable of reflecting backwards, thinking about the past. Okay, the last time I did this, what happened? <laughs> the last time I hit my brother, I got in trouble and I got my switch taken away and I got my Legos taken away and I had to sit in timeout and I didn't like that. So I guess I'm going to use that information to guide my behavior in the present moment. I'm not going to hit my brother. I'm really mad at him. But last time I hit him, I got in a bunch of trouble and a bunch of bad stuff happened. I'm just not going to do it this time. That's hindsight. That's the ability to look backwards, use that information to guide my actions in the present. And that's sort of like, again, it's like this kind of mishmash of time slash working memory where I'm holding that past situation and I'm thinking about it and I'm using it to make decisions about the moment, present moment very sophisticated stuff. Same with foresight. Foresight is my ability to anticipate, my ability to say, okay, I don't maybe have like a past situation to go off of, but I'm sitting in class, I'm with everybody, and I'm getting kind of annoyed at the kid a row up from me. I kind of want to pick a fight with this kid. I'm, I'm really frustrated with him, like I'm really annoyed with him, but I can anticipate and say, if I pick a fight with this kid, I'm like kind of little and shrimpy and I'm probably going to get beat up. Or if I pick a fight with this kid, you know, the teacher's going to see me pick a fight and not notice that he's been annoying every single person in class. You know, that's me looking to the future. And again, I don't necessarily know what's going to happen, but I can run through some scenarios of like, okay, here's some of the potential outcomes. That's foresight. And then there's insight, which is I'm in a moment right now. I'm in a situation right this moment. And this is sort of, again, it's, uh, I like this kind of set of ideas, hindsight, foresight, insight, because this is also sort of a mashup of like internal speech too, like this ability to kind of survey what's happening in the present moment and say, okay, this might not look exactly like something I've done in the past, or I might not even really know what the potential outcomes are in the future, but I'm going to take a pause right now and really just kind of like make an evaluation, check in with my body, <laughs> see what's going on. These are really sophisticated skills. Kids are terrible at this. Ask kids to estimate stuff about what could happen in the future. Ask kids to reflect on stuff about what happened last time. Ask kids, why? <laughs> why did you do this? Why, why did you hit your brother? Why did you pick a fight with the kid in class? Why didn't you clean your room? We clean our room, you know, once a week. We always do it on Mondays. Why, 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 why? <laughs> you know, why did you smear toothpaste all over the bathroom mirror? Why did you like leave all your dishes in your room? Why? You know, and these are questions that if you, Leah, ask me, Colleen, why did you do these things? 
I would be like, oh, wow. Okay, let me think about it. Why did I do that? Like, let me reflect on what was going on for me at that time. I don't know. Maybe I was in a rush or maybe there was other things. Or I could say, you know what? Oh, Leah seems mad at me. So I'm, I should come up with an excuse about, you know, whatever. I can do that because I'm like an adult person with pretty decent executive functioning. When you ask a kid, especially a kid with ADHD, why? What are you going to get back like 98% of the time? I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know. I think not always. Sometimes I don't know is kind of like a smart answer. You know what I mean? Like I'm not trying to say every time, but a lot of the time I actually think I don't know is the answer to that question. A lot of the time I think I don't know is a very legitimate and valid response to the prompt that you're putting out there. Because the truth is oftentimes kids are in situations and they just do stuff. And the time between being in the situation and reacting to it is like very, 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 very small. There isn't a lot of insight. There wasn't a lot of reflecting on the past. There wasn't a lot of anticipating about the future. There wasn't a lot of pause, check in with my body, check in with my speech, check in with what everybody else is doing in the moment. That is some high level executive functioning stuff. Some adults are actually not amazing at the kind of examples I just laid out, but kids and kids with ADHD really aren't good at this. And, you know, it's a frustrating endeavor, I think, when parents are like, why, why? Why? Because they're feeling frustrated and kids are like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I don't really know what more to give you. I guess I could make up a story. Yeah, please don't. Yeah, please don't keep asking me. So as a parent, what is the response rather than just to keep saying, well, what do you mean you don't know? You need to know. You should Uh, know. You must know. So what's a better what's a better way of asking the question? I mean, is it more like, huh, I'm wondering what was going on here or how this could have gone differently? I mean, do you do you coach them on hindsight, foresight, insight? It's a brilliant question because I think the answer kind of depends on what you're in. You know what I mean? So I think there's always room, always room for like post hoc analysis of, whoa, what is this situation? But I think what gets parents kind of frustrated sometimes is the belief that that post hoc analysis serves as a consequence that is going to meaningfully change behavior next time. (laughs) Those might be two different things. There is this kind of let's reflect, let's look backwards, let's anticipate, let's do that together. And I think that's an important teaching moment. But that's not necessarily the kind of consequence that is actually going to make meaningful change in behavior for the future. I think for that, to really understand what's motivating for kids, and that's really what you're asking when you're asking why. When you ask why, what you're really the kind of underpinnings of why is what was the motivation here? Like, what was the driver here? Why? And I think a lot of parents have a suspicion that the why is you're trying to annoy me or you are blowing me off or you don't respect me or you don't, you know what I mean? Like, I think because if you ask me to do something and I just didn't do it, I think it would be very reasonable for you to be like, what's up, Colleen? Do you not like respect me? Like, do you not care about me? Like, I asked you to do. And so I think that's sort of what's underlying the why. And the reality is most kids, that is not where they are at from a developmental perspective. They really are not. The why, even if kids could articulate it, it's just not that sophisticated. And so the rationale, the logic, the reasoning, all of that is good teaching stuff, but it's not the response that's actually going to get kids to clean their room the first time next time or to not hit their brother next time or to not pick a fight in school next time. I think really what we're talking about with that then is how do we find what's motivating for kids 
And how do we match our communication with kids to where they are at Mm. developmentally? And really where they are at in terms of their understanding of right versus wrong, why am I doing anything? You know what I mean? And so I think when I speak to caregivers and parents, that's where I try to land is, okay, it's kind of futile to do a lot of logicking, reasoning, rationalizing, why asking. It's frustrating for you. It's frustrating for your child. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about it's a little bit like Well, I think about toddlers and potty training or, you know, somebody that an 18 month old who doesn't have great language skills and they bite somebody and you can spend a lot of breath going, why'd you do that? Don't you know, that's not nice to do that. But they don't have the words or the insight or the cognition to really be able to say, well, you know, he had a toy that I wanted. And so I just bit him, you know, because I thought maybe that would get it back for me, you know, and and not to equate children with dogs, but I think about dog training, you know, we don't say to the dog, gee, you know, we had such a really nice, lovely walk, and I can't believe now you just pooped on the floor. You know, we just, we have hopefully short commands, you reinforce, and the dog learns over time, like, oh, I'm supposed to poop outside on the walk, yeah. not in the house. Although my dog still doesn't get that and she's eight and a half. So, <laughs> but I digress. So, so does this vary by age or is it more of a cognitive thing or a little bit of both? Yeah, I, I think, yes, that's exactly the kinds of questions that I'm hoping to get caregivers to ask because that curiosity about like, okay, then how do I, how do I approach this? Is this puppy training? That doesn't feel right. Like it's, it's certainly not the way I would speak to like an adult person. So like, what am I trying to do here? And I think the way I talk about it is in a stage model. Developmental psychologists love stages, like, you know, and, you know, pediatricians too, like stages and milestones and all of that kind of stuff. I try to break it down to families like this. And again, this isn't like an an intervention, like timeout is an intervention or special time is an intervention. But as I said on our very first episode together about executive functioning, sometimes I think taking the pause to just set expectations is so critical for any other intervention you offer to work. So like last time we met, we talked a lot about TLC. TLC is a really great example of like a stage matched intervention. Here's what I mean. I'm going to talk about some developmental stages. And I'm talking about developmental stages of moral reasoning, my understanding of right versus wrong, the things that motivate me, the internal drivers for my behavior, because they change as I get older and they change just in the way my perceptual reasoning changes just in the way my like sort of motor development happens. This moral reasoning happens in these phases or stages, which are semi-predictable. I'm going to run through the way I talk about it with families real quick. But just as a reminder, even within these stages, when we talk about kids with ADHD, moral reasoning is like an executive function. Moral reasoning is sort of an abstract thing. And and I'll kind of talk about what I mean as I kind of go through some of this. But When we're talking about this, then again, we're talking about kids who might be two to three years delayed compared to their same age peers. So if I'm talking about a seven-year-old, I might actually be talking about somebody who's operating when it comes to moral reasoning, more like a four-year-old or five-year-old. So just kind of keep that in mind. Three stages. And this is sort of like a a mash of a few different developmental theories, a little bit of like Kohlberg, a little bit of uh, Piaget, a little bit of... Uh, you know, the classic developmental theorists. Three stages. Stage one is sort of 
the puppy stage, I guess, if we were going to carry forward your analogy. Stage one is for kids ages zero to five, ages zero up until like that kindergarten age time. And it is a stage that I lovingly call win-lose. And win-lose means, and if I'm the kiddo in this situation, I win. (laughs) That's the motivation. That's the driver. That's the thing. I win. You lose. That's it. There isn't much more sophisticated stuff going on than that. The things that are driving me at any given moment is me. It is a phase that is characterized by egocentrism. I am the center of the world. And that really is true. I mean, you think about zero to five years old. When I am a baby, I I am the center of my world. Like my hunger, my needs, my pain, my illness, my sleep, my whatever is the only thing that matters. It's certainly the only thing that should matter to anyone in my immediate sphere is me. And I am incapable, incapable of understanding that you even have a point of view or a perspective. I am the only thing in this world with feelings. I am the only thing in this world with needs. I need to win. And if I don't win, we all lose. (laughs) And that is a stage that is like an infancy thing, but from a moral reasoning perspective, does bump all the way up until kindergarten. Five-year-olds really aren't capable of taking two perspectives at the same time really are not capable of understanding that you, mom, you, dad, you, grandma, you, aunt, you, teacher, have your own wants, needs, desires, things going on. The only thing I care about is my stuff. And therefore, that's the only thing you care about, because guess what? I'm the center of this world. I'm the sun, you know? And so right and wrong for a zero to five-year-old in this like win-lose stage is really like, what do I want? What makes me feel good? And that's right. And everything else is wrong. That to me sounds like the reason for a meltdown, you know, and a tantrum. If I don't get it and I lose, then I'm going to fall apart and scream and and kick until I get what I want. Right. Yeah. And and that that would be sort of a normal way of behaving because that's the only thing that makes sense to me. Now, again, it's not like we're going to let it happen necessarily. We're going to try and train. Right. Mm -hmm. So. I'll let you keep going, but that just came to mind. No, I think that's exactly right because a temper tantrum kind of communicates the distress that I am in. (laughs) And there is no words that are going to get me out of that. There is no reasoning, logic, rationality that's going to get me out of that because it doesn't make sense to begin with. That's not the point. Do you know what I mean? The motivators at this stage are like me. What do I want? What do I need? And so as parents and caregivers, the only things you can really do in these situations, what kids really need in this situation is your supervision, (laughs) because I'm not capable of sort of making bigger picture decisions, truly incapable of doing that. I need your supervision. And then the things I'm going to respond to really are pretty black and white things. Like I will respond to rewards and reinforcers and tangible incentives. I will respond to easily identifiable consequences. I will respond to sort of like my baser emotions of fear. But other than that, not much, you know, like I don't have this, not just do I not have the language necessarily, I don't have the perspective taking to understand that when I have a temper tantrum, that ruins your morning. I really don't, you know what I mean? I don't, I am not capable of that. 
yeah, they're not, they're not thinking about you. (laughs) Um, And I say it this way, not to put down kids, but truly their brains are not able to do that. So it's not like they're tiny little psychopaths who are choosing not to care about your feelings. They truly can't understand the idea that feelings exist outside of the ones that they're having right in that moment. And yet there are studies that are looking at empathy and care for other individuals that starts early, right? I mean, and some of the stuff, some of the brain stuff that makes things like empathy happen is starting, 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 starting to come online. But empathy, the experience of empathy is something very different. So like, I'll kind of walk through, because that's what we're building to. We are building to empathy, but empathy, what really empathy is, is something that a zero to five-year-old, I can promise you, is just not going to have. There are these things in the brain called mirror neurons that sort of light up this like recognition, like when you put a kid in front of a mirror and eventually they point to themselves instead of their image on the mirror. Is that empathy or is that the beginnings of understanding perspective taking? And some of that, some of that is starting to come along so that we can get and start to float our way into stage two. So stage two is the next kind of piece of this moral reasoning, moral development journey. It's for kids like six to 11-ish. And this is a stage that is called win-win. So win-lose is stage one. Win-win is stage two. And win-win is big win, which is for me, and then little win, which is for you. So when I'm six to 11, I'm starting to understand, okay, you have a perspective. You, my parent, you've got your own stuff going on. I don't really understand it. I don't really get it. I don't super care. I care insofar as I need to win capital W. And so I recognize that that means you need like a tiny win capital W. I'm starting to understand. And this is a very cool time, but I'm starting to understand that you have a perspective. And for me to win, you have to win a little bit. I got to give something so I can get something. That's kind of the level, the sophistication level of moral reasoning at this stage. I understand you're a person. I understand you have a perspective. And I mean, some of this, again, ties to like kind of classic developmental stuff. This is like what's behind like object permanence. This is what's behind like um, if you've ever seen those Piagetti and things where they're pouring liquid between the glasses and now they're equal, even though they're in different shaped jars, like that stuff that's starting to come online six, seven, eight years old. And that's perspective taking. It's not empathy. We'll talk about what empathy is when we get to stage three. But it is the recognition, the beginning of a recognition, like, all right, you've got some stuff going on. You're seeing things from your eyes. I'm seeing things from my eyes. My stuff is still kind of supreme. Like whatever I'm needing is still kind of the thing that's the most important here. But I get it. You got stuff that you need. And really, this is a stage that is kind of dictated. This is when kids are starting to go to school. And so this is when kids start to become, and I know this sounds like a little maybe antithetical even to uh, what a lot of kids with like ADHD and ODD kind of behaviors um, are into, but kids in this age group are super into the rules. They're real into the rules and the rules dictate what is right and what is wrong. And the rules and authority and kind of status, like the teacher is the one who says what is right and wrong. And the rules are really important. And people who break the rules are bad and people who follow the rules are good. And even kids who are like constant rule breakers are capable of doing that 
sort of mental gymnastics of like right and wrong has to do with, do you follow the rules? Do you listen to authority? Do you, uh, do you recognize that there's a person in front of you who's kind of setting the tone and setting the stage? And that person sort of needs their little W for you to get your big W for you to be able to go do recess and be with your friends. You got to kind of like play the game with the teacher. Um, and so I think this is a stage that again, is a little bit frustrating for parents because it has the seeds of what will become empathy, like perspective taking is a natural kind of, it's the crawling that has to happen before we're walking is this perspective taking thing, but it's not super sophisticated. It's pretty black and white. And I think that's kind of hard for parents because kids in this age group, stage of moral reasoning are really into negotiating, which I think a lot of parents find very annoying and obnoxious. Uh, they want to barter over everything. They want to bargain over everything, which again is this sort of like win-win perspective. Like, I get it. We have to do this dance. I want to do it with you. This is when kids start to experiment with lying. And lying is, you know, I I find it very frustrating also. <laughs> like, I, I don't love, no one loves being lied to. Nobody likes that a lot. But it really shows the kind of, again, the beginnings of some really cool perspective taking things. Like, I know the truth. I know you might not know the truth. I'm going to tell you a story and see how it goes. And, you know, kids are bad liars when they're little. They don't really understand how the game of lying is played. And so, again, but it kind of shows the beginnings of perspective taking, the beginnings of uh, understanding that you have a, a truth and I have a truth and those things might not be the same thing. It's a very so, cool time. So lying is not necessarily... Um, the development, as you said earlier, of a sociopath. What about remorse? Does that fit into here somewhere? Or is that yeah. kind of go hand in hand with empathy? No, love Because I think question. you want, you know, people are really upset when their kids like, do they feel bad? Or are they just saying it to get out of the situation? And are they going to be, you know, the killer next door? No, it's a perfect question. I'm so glad that you asked. It does tie a little bit into this conversation about empathy, which is a real stage three thing. But I'm going to just answer your question because you've asked it right now. Remorse? Probably not. <laughs> probably not. Probably not. It probably is the latter. And I don't think that's a bad thing. When you said, am I just trying to get out of the situation right now? Yeah, probably. Probably. Because what is bad about the situation is not me or my moral character or or my future or my past. I can't do any of that. I'm in trouble. I broke a rule. That's bad. I'm going to have to probably suffer some sort of consequences. I don't like that. What's wrong about the situation is that the rule is broken. And what you do when you're in the wrong is I got to apologize or I got to do something. I got to say some words to get out of the situation. But it's probably not much deeper than that, honestly. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I actually think cognitively, that is sort of where kids are at. A mm. six-year-old is not capable of something wildly more sophisticated than that. In fact, it's kind mm. of impressive that a six-year-old is capable of doing that dance. That really is like an advancement. It's not some sort of like, you know, thing to be wildly disappointed in. Now there's teaching moments that can happen, but the truth of the matter is your child is probably not experiencing remorse in the way that you mean it, Leah, like in the, in the kind of like it hurts in your body. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, or it, it you feel it. Remorse is very tied to empathy and empathy is not, ha is not happening until we're talking more like 12, 13, 14, if we're lucky. 
Does it ever happen on a different level, like with pets? Is that a different thing? I mean, I think about kids, you know, think about empathy and caring, that there is something unique about that, how people, and then when kids are not that way with pets, it feels like something's, you know, you always hear about, you know, if if a kid hurts animals, that's like a really bad sign. I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm way off base here, but I'm just having in my head like, okay, I'm following, I'm following, but like, what about animals that kids really seem to get? Yeah. I don't know. Is that because they equate that with themselves, sort of, that I'm vulnerable? I don't know. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure. I do think you're right that there can be flashes of this stuff that looks like empathy. And even even kids, I'm not saying there aren't flashes, just like in the same way, like when kids are learning to walk and like suddenly they take like a running leap for like 10 steps and you're like, holy cow, where did that come from? Or like suddenly your two-year-old is like stringing together sentences and you're like, whoa, what is that? And it doesn't mean I have like perfect mastery over language now or speech. It doesn't mean now I'm like an Olympic sprinter. There are these like bursts of development just like there are with anything. And so I think sometimes, and I don't, I don't know, you know, I'm sure there is a lot of really good research about sort of, uh, animals do seem to be some sort of like very magical thing for children. I, I agree with that. Um, I wish I was more kind of fluent in the data around it. But I think what I would say is even those are like flashes. I would not say that is like indicative of like a really well-developed sense of empathy. I truly think the average child is not capable of that at six, seven, eight, nine years old. I really don't. Well, and I think that somehow we feel like that feels bad. Like my kid doesn't, my kid doesn't care. They don't, they don't feel bad for having gotten into, they feel bad about getting in trouble because they got in trouble. They're not necessarily feeling bad because they did something that was mm-hmm. wrong. And and of course, there are people that are experiencing that that are adults, and that is a whole different thing. They kind of got stuck, yeah. right? But um, so, but I like the way you talk about it developmentally. If we're thinking about walking, like you said, you know, you take a few steps, you're not a sprinter. And the same being, it's not a bad thing that they don't have this kind of really intricate way of thinking because the pathways just aren't there yet. So it's not like that they're bad individuals. But I think as adults, we we don't know right. that. We have these expectations that are just don't fit what kids can do. I think that's exactly right. And I think that's a really lovely way to put voice to it, which is as an adult, it's almost like it's disappointing or it's frustrating or it's like, uh, I, I don't know, like you, I think you captured it really well, which is just, there's kind of this feeling of, oh, like, you know what I mean? Of, Shoot, yeah. I thought you were better no, than that. Because <laughs> it's really hard to communicate with somebody when I'm on one level and they're on a different level. It really is hard. Let me just, let me just get into stage three because I think, you know, most parents, and you are a hundred percent right. Not every single person makes it to stage three, to be honest. Not every single person makes it to this higher level. None of this is like absolutely 100% guaranteed that you're going to progress nicely at every moment. And some people don't make it to stage three. And honestly, uh, when I'm not feeling well or when I'm in the car and someone cuts me off, I can't pretend that I never revert back to stage two. Like I can't pretend if I only sleep four hours and I show up to a clinic and everything's a hot mess. I can't pretend that I'm always operating 100% stage three. Just like all developmental things, there are like little regressions and little pushbacks and little things for all of us. But stage three is the dream. 
And stage three, the things I'm about to talk about in stage three are not happening, not happening before age 12. And age 12 is actually kind of early for this stuff to really start to pick up. So by the time we're like in middle school, you know, middle school is kind of like almost we're cycling back into like some egocentrism, like we're kind of cycling the beginnings of puberty are kind of, you know, washing our brains and some stuff that looks a little bit more like stage one. But at some point, some point, we're going to be washing back into stage three. And stage three doesn't have a cutesy name. It's just, we're there. We made it. Moral reasoning. We are capable of these kind of, the things you're talking about, this this idea of empathy, this idea of, and empathy is really a beautiful thing that is a higher order executive function. It really is. Because empathy is perspective taking. I have a perspective and a history. You have a perspective and a history. But it's not just that. It is when I hear about your perspective and your history and your experience and your context and you express to me feelings that you've had, I can feel the feelings. If you were to tell me about a trauma that you experienced or a loss that you'd had, or you told me about a time that you got really hurt, you were in a motor vehicle accident and you had a really horrific injury, and you tell me about that, I, I, as a person with empathy, not only can be like, oh, wow, that's awful. I will feel it in my body. I will feel grief. I will feel loss. I will feel trauma. I will feel pain. Like I will feel, it's not just that I can take your perspective. I can like hear your story and I can like put myself in that story and in the moment that you're just using words that can feel your feelings. Children are not capable of this. <laughs> I, I love it. It feels like there's yeah. like a oh, kind of moment where the lights go on and there's this know, brilliant gold and shining and you go, oh my God, so you've arrived. <laughs> but it but it probably comes and goes. And, uh, you know, and, but I love the way that you're talking about this in it, developmentally. That just like, it's yeah. like an aha, like, oh, that makes sense. And so, how do you use that stage three empathy logic? Well, yeah, it's a great question. You know, and it, it kind of comes back to like, you know, in stage three, I feel, okay, so I feel like a lot of the people who come to see me, a lot of the families who come to see me, the parents are pretty much in stage three. They're hanging out in stage three. And most of the kids they're bringing to see me are like floating around, snapping back and forth in between stage one and stage two. And I am a firm believer that stage three communication with a stage two or a stage one person, that's like when you ask why. You know what I mean? That's like gets back to this hindsight, foresight, insight thing. When you ask why, you're coming from a stage three place. You're asking a stage two person, why, 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 why? You're expecting a stage three response and a child is not capable of it. A child is not capable of it. A small child. I mean, not any child, but like a child below the age of 12, a pre, like a preteen is not really capable of answering the why in the way that you want them to. Here's a great example. If you're in stage three, it's kind of like the difference between equity and justice fairness. Kids in stage two are obsessed with fair. I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure your girls went through some version of this. It's not fair. Ah, you know, like, and we're super obsessed with fair. And it's like, okay, we're at snack time and we're handing out, we're distributing the snacks. And the snacks are everybody gets one packet of goldfish crackers. That's fair. So we all get our packet of goldfish crackers. That's super fair. 
And I noticed that the teacher gave the kid next to me two goldfish crackers. That's not fair. The rule is we get one goldfish cracker. That's wrong. That's not okay. And even if you go to that child and you try to explain, it is not going to register. Kids and stage two are like, the rule is we get one snack. Everybody gets one snack. That is equal. That is fair. And I can't get out of that because I am not capable of stage three. Stage three would be like, okay, this kid next to me got two goldfish crackers. Maybe this kid next to me has diabetes and needs an extra snack because they need to get their blood sugar in a different zone. Or maybe this kid next to me got two snacks because at home they didn't eat breakfast today and they came in late and they missed school breakfast and they're really hungry. They need two snacks. Maybe the kid next to me had a really bad day and is sick and not feeling well and just needs an extra snack. And the teacher recognized that and and said, you know what, this kid just needs an extra snack today. Maybe this kid got two snacks because the teacher knows that they're going to have to stay after school for extra tutoring and they're supposed to squirrel that snack away for later. If I'm in stage three, I can do that. I can do some of that. And kids in stage two cannot. And I think oftentimes a lot of the conflict that happens between kids and parents is like, I'm in stage three and I'm trying to make you understand why fair is not the thing you should care about. But if I'm a kid in stage two, I truly cannot process what you're talking about. Like I cannot do the thing that you are asking me to do mentally, cognitively, developmentally. And so I feel like um, when parents use things like, don't you know that that makes so-and-so sad? Don't you know that that hurts so-and-so's feelings? Don't you know? And kids are like, I think I'm supposed to say yes. <laughs> like, I think the win-win in this situation is, yes, is that how I get out of this conversation? I, okay, I guess their feelings are hurt. But that probably is the level of of logic that kids in those stages are capable of. So, so I'm sure this is the next part is like, okay, so what yeah. do you do? How do you, I mean, because part of it, I think we're, trying to model and teach, maybe explain it. Like, here's the reason I get you don't really care about this. Here's the reason. And maybe you'll understand this someday. But so what's what does a parent or a teacher say to that? That's going to be. So how do you match stage yeah. two with it's a great, stage it's two? A great question. Okay, this was just such an amazing conversation. So here are my takeaways. Number one, She is just the best. And did you notice that I left you hanging at the end? Dr. Cullinan and I had a very long conversation with so much information that I wanted to break this into two parts so you can digest the content and take notes. You're going to want to listen to this over and over. Number two, quick reminder, executive function is the brain's air traffic control. Working memory is the executive function that holds and processes multiple steps, categorizes, and prioritizes with sophistication and speed. Number three, examples, driving. Should teens actually be doing that? Or go clean your room. Easy for you to say, but the kid brain and especially the ADHD brain really struggle with all the planning and doing that this requires. It's not defiance, it's lack of skills. Number four, kids have great verbal skills and this often fools us. We wonder why they can explain the rules but they can't follow them. And we keep asking why. But the I don't know may be the real truth. Number five, let's spend a minute on another set of executive functioning skills. 
hindsight, insight, and foresight. First, hindsight. That is looking back, reflecting, and using all that information to guide current decisions and behavior. That sounds easy, but this is a sophisticated skill and is not up to speed in kids, especially those who have ADHD, who may be two to three years behind in executive function maturation. Number six, insight is, I understand why I do what I do. For a lot of kids, they don't have a clue. Number seven, foresight. That is, I can anticipate the outcome of scenarios and adjust accordingly. For example, the police stopped me for speeding. And I know as an adult that it's not a good idea to argue, but a kid may not. Number eight. So now we dive into a really fascinating aha, moral development and motivation. Let's start with the puppy stage, stage one, zero to five years. This is what Colleen describes as I win, you lose. I have to win. And if I don't, I melt down. There is no rationalizing here. I'm incapable of taking your point of view because mine is the only one that matters. I can crawl, but I can't walk. It's just development. I need supervision and consequences that are immediate to impact change in behavior. When I hit the dog, I go to timeout. Boom, that's it. And you don't talk to me about it at all. Number nine, stage two, ages five to 11. Big win, little win. I win. And oh, you can too, a little bit. I can take your perspective. I love rules, even if I break them. And I can negotiate all day long. I would make an amazing attorney. It's all about fair and just for me. I love praise and social rewards and more of this in part four about how that can help with behavior change. Number 10, stage three, ages 11 and older. This is where I get moral principles, empathy, remorse, honesty, and respect matter to me. I can feel your feelings. This is an adult's dream. We want kids in this stage, but we have to wait until they get there. I get that what I do disappoints and hurts you, and I feel terrible, and I will try really hard not to do that again. That's a stage three perspective. Number 11, I may be stuck at stage two, even if I'm 13. Learning the motivators and matching interventions to stage is critical. Again, check out episode number four next week for the final chapter. And number 12, as always, a huge thank you to Dr. Colleen Cullinan, who in my book is just brilliant. So I hope that you have a great rest of the day. Appreciate everything you do. And again, make sure that you are ready next Wednesday for part four. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown, and I hope you found it as interesting as I did. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. Music was composed by Connor McHugh, and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero. If you would like to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino and on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown. I would love listener ideas and suggestions and hope to hear from you. Thank you so much, and I hope you will join me next week.